This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 13, By Any Means Necessary. And there will be a brief pause because once again, I have forgotten what episode number we're on. 13. We really are on the 13. Yes, dear. Lucky Hooray! 13. We're ready to start now. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. This is a book club of the mind because no other book club is of the mind. But this, this intellectual show that is Babylon 5, it is pure mind candy. And it's our favorite show. So we're talking about it episode by episode by week by by week. Hi, Erica. Hi, Shannon. Hello. Hello. We're talking about By Any Means Necessary, which is a bit of a departure for an episode of Babylon 5, uh, for any science fiction show, really. Um, it's a story about a labor struggle uh, and a plant. And that's it. There's no... Sp- there, there's not a whole lot of spaceships. There's not a whole lot of guns. There's not a whole lot of zap, 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 which are all the things that I love. Not a single Star Fury. This is true. You know, when you said, and a plant, I at first my brain didn't go to actual physical, you know, leafy plant. I was thinking, was there a spy in the, uh, in the dot workers <laughs> guild? Nope. I guess my brain's just not on yet. Oh, now, if, if you look real hard, uh, there is a Groot cameo there in the background somewhere. That's your plant. <laughs> oh, jeepers. Oh, uh- Hey, hey, Guardians of the Galaxy's references are always timely. Groot was very cute. I will give you that. (laughs) Mm. Um, So uh, we are definitely uh, moving towards we're we're in the last half of uh, the series and um, and, uh, the season first season. season. Yeah. Watch your Britishisms. Right, right, right. We're in the last half of the season and this is. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't say what I want to say about this episode because it is a spoiler for next week. So um, let's just go into what you need to know, and we'll go through the rundown, and then we'll talk about this episode, and then we'll make our customary jump into spoiler space, where we'll talk about how this episode fits into the wider range of the show. And just to remind you, if you're new to the audio guide to Babylon Five, or if you're new to Babylon Five itself. All of our episodes are at b5audioguide.com. You are welcome to start at episode zero and work your way forward watching uh, Babylon 5 with us. This we, we hope this will be a timeless anthology guide thing. It started out great, but it, I, I just ran out of <laughs> gas. Got away from you? Yeah, it got away from me. Uh, but we want to we, we want to walk you through this series no matter when you're encountering it because we love it so much. I'm going to eject the cat from my desk here, and I'm going to talk about what you need to know before by any means necessary. (laughs) Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space owned by the Earth Alliance and run by Earth Force Commander Jeffrey Sinclair. The alien empires represented on the station, especially the Narn and Centauri, don't get along very well, as we saw when the Narn attempted to annex the Centauri outpost Ragesh 3. We've also seen that the Earth Alliance is itself going through a rough patch, increasing xenophobia and economic pressures, the sort of thing you rarely saw impact, say, Starfleet, but have certainly weighed on Sinclair and his team as they've tried to hold the station together with spit and bailing wire. Which brings us to, by any means necessary, 
in which the background hints of just how hard it is to run the station hit home. An accident kills a dock worker and exposes how under-resourced and overworked their guild is. It's a classic labor struggle compounded by the Earth Senate's willingness to invoke a union-busting law called the Rush Act, which would force Sinclair and Security Chief Garibaldi to violently shut down the strike. Except Sinclair uses the loophole in the title of the episode, using the letter of the Rush Act, to avert the crackdown and supply the dock workers what they need. At the same time, Sinclair is caught between Narn Ambassador Jakar and Centauri Ambassador Londo Malari, who are at each other's throats when the dock accident leads Jakar without a hugely religiously significant plant. And Londo has the only one on the station. 48 hours later, both crises are resolved, and Sinclair can finally take a nap. And shave. And shave. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of beard acting or stubble acting in this episode. Wardrobe acting, too. Yes, yes, a lot of unbuttoned collar acting going on here. So, Mm -hmm. uh, by any means necessary, um, this is another one of those episodes that's more real-world allegory than proper science fiction, uh, with B5 sort of going to its, you know, humans aren't all that different two or three hundred years from now as they are today, and we're making the same mistakes over and over again. An episode all about real-world economics and politics, I wanted to ask the both of you. Was it interesting or dull? Was it believable or overwrought? Uh, What do you think? Let's uh, toss it over to Erica. You know, I really liked it. You said this is more real-world allegory than proper science fiction. Honestly, I think a lot of the best proper science fiction is real-world allegory. I like it best when it it gets into these questions of of how people interact with each other and the systems that we've built around us. And and I like the idea that some of the same problems crop up again and again in the future, um, whether it be on this planet or on another space station or another planet altogether. So for me, this this played out great. Uh, I enjoyed the political aspect and, and like Shannon I was I was very much on the side of the dock workers all along and I I was engaged from beginning to end uh, I, I guess I can't quite say the same for Stephen um, because he was really excited by the cold open with you know the, the the tension with the you know Narn ship getting partially blown up and oh my gosh oh, no and then it switched over and became a, a political struggle about you know workers rights and wasn't quite expecting that i was because i'd seen it before so i i love this one i really really like it yeah for for me i remember this episode very fondly um from the first time i watched it to the few times i've seen it since then uh although it's been a while since this viewing and um i always really and thoroughly enjoyed it not only because yes you were going through all of these struggles that people can identify with. The viewers can really identify with what's going on here. I also like the exploration, again, of seeing all parts of Babylon 5. This is, again, something that we don't see in the Star Trek universe or in a lot of other science fiction shows, where JMS takes the time to show us just what it takes to keep the station running. Uh, The fact that it takes hundreds of people working around the clock to keep the cargo moving in and out. He actually takes the time to explore what's going on there and explore their story. Um, And I live for the moment when Zento tells Sinclair, you know, get started. You're invoking the Rush Act. And Sinclair goes, thank you, and proceeds to do what he wanted to do all along. Um, I live for that moment when he takes down Zento and solves the problem without... Um, without violence. So uh, that always, um, that always rang for me. 
Uh, this time around, I was a touch more cynical about it, partially. This time, it seemed a little bit a little bit overwrought in some cases with the actors uh, playing Zento oh, yeah. and Connolly. Um, they they edged toward caricature at times. Um, I have that not, word in my notes as well. Yeah, not all the way, but um, they, they, they sort of pushed it at times for me. Um, I was a little more interested in the B-plot between Jakar and Londo. Um, we have been talking about religion and how religion is portrayed in B5, and we finally get to see the Narn and see hints up close, and I was able to pay better attention to that this time around. The fact that there's more than one sect among the Narn... Um, Jakar following Jaquan, uh, Natoth's parents having different beliefs, and she herself basically just shrugging and being agnostic, um, and and little things. Uh, the scene where Jakar is blowing his stack in front of Natoth, and he's in a full-on tantrum. He's na- knocks something off the table, and then um, he's about to knock the book of Jaquan off the table, and then he stops and he's like, "Oh no, can't do that. Calm down." Um, so I was able to appreciate the B plot more than I used to. I pretty much forgotten it was there for the longest time uh, because the A-plot um, had such a great climax for me. Well, let's uh, let's save the B-plot and let's uh, concentrate on the A-plot for the moment here. Um, yeah, I just want to say that Agnostic Narn is going to be the name of my new heavy metal band. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Well, um, so uh, Stephen found it uh, not entirely engaging, but when when I look back, this is going to sound really weird, but if you remember the uh, original 1970s Battlestar Galactica, one of my favorite episodes by far, and if I watch it today, it might not hold true, but I loved Fire in Space, which was uh, basically the tower, Battlestar Galactica, the ship becomes a, the towering inferno. There's a fight, there's an explosion, and then the whole rest of the episode that's not about the Colonials versus the Cylons or anything like that. It's um, the big ship is on fire and they're trying to find a way to uh, stop it without killing everybody on the ship. It's that infusion of real world that I really like about by any means necessary. And I really like the fact that even though it's pretty broadly played, um, it is a very believable crisis. Um, um, and that is written in my notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> believable. Mm-hmm. The very believable crisis. Um, the the workers themselves, the dock workers, the guild workers by large, were very believable. Mm-hmm. Especially, uh, what did you think about um, uh, Eduardo Del Vientos, uh, played by Jose Ray? I liked him. I, I think he had the most subtlety of any of the um, secondary characters, frankly. Uh, yes, he was rabble-rousing at one point, but at the scene where after Garibaldi's forces and the dock workers have, have clashed just before things get settled, um, Eduardo had been the one to throw the first punch. And there's this long shot, longish close-up of him looking for all the world like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. He's looking really, really regretful. And that was a neat little extra touch, I thought, that, you know, rounded his character some. Yeah, I agree. I, I quite liked him. I mean, he he definitely has a little bit of the stage acting vibe, but that's just what you get kind of across the board on Babylon Five, especially with the the extras and the um, and the first season. Yeah, yep, and the walk on folks and stuff. Uh, but I, I really I liked his character as written and as performed. I thought I thought he was good. I thought it was actually nice to see um, you know an, an actor that wasn't your typical 
white bread actor on the show, which is another strength. I mean, we talk a lot about women in positions of power on Babylon 5, which we get again in this episode. Uh, but it's I think it's also worth pointing out that we also have sort of a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial cast as well. And again, it's not tokenism. It's never sort of pointed out like, you know, Dr. Franklin isn't the token black guy so much as we just, these are people doing their jobs and it's it's the future. So it's it's not it's not such a big deal. People are just people and it doesn't really matter where they come from and who they are. Yeah. And the Dock Workers Guild itself um, is cast uh, in a very diverse way. Uh, It's blue, Mm -hmm. definitely blue collar, but um, some gender diversity, some racial diversity, you know, it's, it gets the point across. Um, So does this episode, um, does it handle the issues of, you know, the labor stuff and all the stuff uh, with any kind of subtlety? Or is it kind of, <laughs> is, is it just, you've got your good guys here and they're blue collar and you've got your bad guys here and they're government and elites, you know, is there not enough subtlety to this one? And is that a problem? I don't think it's very subtle at all, but I, I don't think that I don't think that in general, you know, Babylon Five is is it's at least this season is going for particular subtlety when it comes to these kinds of issues, and and I'm okay with that. I think that you know we're we're out in space and a lot of the things are, are sort of more broadly drawn, and I'm I'm okay with that. Uh, I like especially at the time I felt like the the TV shows that I was watching. You really did want your good guys and your bad guys, and. Um, while I, I feel overall, without being spoilery, that the show sort of gets more more grays in the future as far as the, the subtlety of who's good and who's bad and that kind of stuff. But for now, I, I kind of like having a picture painted for me uh, about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. However, I really don't – I think saying bad guy might be a little – a touch strong because, you know, you get Senator Hidoshi and he clearly – he's not – being mean about it there's there's definitely no rancor involved he's just saying listen this is the way things are things are not great on earth either this is this is what they've decided i can't do anything for you so it's it doesn't seem like babylon 5 is is being singled out in any way i mean zento much as i can't stand him as a character <laughs> he's, he's talking to the dock workers and he's saying you know it's not just your guild this is this is across the board it's everywhere and i definitely get that impression also from from the speeches we see sort of behind the scenes between sinclair and hidoshi so it's it's kind of like the the bad guy is just sort of the situation in general. And, you know, the world is in a position where it, it kind of sucks. And the as usual, you know, the, as they put it, the government is not listening to the little guy, not paying attention to what they really need. And and I'm, I'm OK with it being that that sort of it, it's not quite cartoony in its uh, in its broadly drawnness, but it's it's getting there. And and I like it because it just makes for sort of a more fun ride i don't necessarily have to engage my brain so much and maybe that should be a criticism but for me it's not i don't think it gets cartoony until uh, john snyder uh as oren zento comes on the stage but we'll get to that in a moment shannon what (laughs) do you think well i I actually think it it does get there slightly uh i had forgotten about how they introduced Connolly with that fist just come pounding down on the on the table um that sort of made me jump a little bit and jump me out of the story slightly to go you know okay yeah she's she's mad i get it um, for me, I didn't, I didn't think it was that subtle. Again, however, I don't know that we needed subtle yet. Uh, you don't want subtle in the foundation, and we're still building the foundation of the story. Um, so, the foundation is where you want good, solid, broad uh, support. 
And I think that is what they were trying to provide. If they had tried to do more with um, just how entangled the government is, how many problems there are, um, they would have run out of time if they if they tried to balance both sides completely fairly. Um, and on the other hand, I don't think they were necessarily trying to balance both sides. Uh, we've had hints all along that there are factions in the government that don't like Babylon 5. So that there's there is a boogeyman over there. And I think that part of this episode was to shine a little more light on the boogeyman and say he's still there. Look, we've we've still got issues. Um, And they do it in some of the tiniest ways, that little throwaway line of if Santiago can turn things around. I mean, you know, yes, just last episode, people were trying to kill him, but there wasn't as there wasn't the sense so much as that he was actually losing control of the government or losing control of people in the government uh, like this episode did. So uh, for me, broadly played, yes, but um, it works for the story. Yeah. And lest there be any doubt about uh, JMS's personal politics on this issue, he named the Rush Act after uh, American talk show host, even 20 years ago, Rush Limbaugh, who when a UK uh, viewer asked who this Rush Limbaugh guy was, um, JMS responded, leading American proctologist. So with apologies to our conservative Zing. listeners, yeah. Um, <laughs> you mean it wasn't named after the uh, Canadian prog rock trio? <laughs> oh. They really missed an opportunity for a Getty Lee cameo, didn't they? <laughs> they did indeed. Mm. Uh, and that law, uh, quote, grants extraordinary power to resolve any kind of strike or union action which endangers the operation of a military base or other mili- military operation. And I, that, I think that was so clear in the the writer and producer's mind that I don't think it was ever exactly spelled out in the episodes. Just the Rush Act is going to this Rush, the Rush Act means people are going to bust some heads. That's mm-hmm. what it. I don't think they needed. I don't think they needed to spell it out any more than that. I think I think we got the picture pretty well. Like you know, Rush Act means talking to Garibaldi to get troops ready. Boom, I'm in. I get it. Yeah. And Rush Act has caused huge problems on all these other outposts. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think we got enough. And uh, and it hadn't been used in a while, and it was considered to be a really harsh uh, measure, and to everybody's surprise, including the unions, um, it gets invoked, and uh, troubles and, and troubles come. And that, that was one thing that uh, rang true to me, sort of the, uh, the refusal to believe that the worst could happen. Sinclair saying, I don't know, you, you, you better be careful about this, and then sure enough, the, the, the worst does happen. Uh, and it, at least it is the worst until Sinclair figures out how to use it to his advantage. I think this was a really important episode for the guest cast to turn in good performances. The Zinto and Connolly are really important characters, um, slightly less so um, Senator Hodoshi and Eduardo Del Vientos. How did the guest cast do? Well, we already spoke about Eduardo, um, that the actor playing Eduardo had some subtlety to him, even though he was playing the the broad New York blue collar type guy. I had trouble with um, with Santo. I had trouble with John Snyder. Um, Mm -hmm. He he was such the smarmy politician when he was talking to the dock workers, even though we were saying a minute ago how he was outlining how it's everywhere. All of these problems are everywhere. Frankly, I didn't believe him. 
I, I thought he was there just to figure out how to get the get the dock workers back to work saying anything. He struck me as such such a smarmy politician um, that it really didn't work for me. You know, I actually have that. I have the same word. I have Zento is the smarmiest jackass. <laughs> I, I mean, my question was like for that, it wasn't just that the performance bothered me, but it pulled me out of the story a little bit because I had a real hard time believing that this guy had solved things in other places. He has this reputation as being, you know, the he gets stuff done. And I cannot for the life of me believe that somebody with this attitude and this kind of like just unctuousness is going to be able to get anything done and, and you know, work between two factions to bring them together to get get them back to work i i just I, I feel like you know what were the other places that he did it was was it europa and all those other places where they just ended up invoking the rush act um, so i just from a perspective of the way he was directed to act uh it didn't work for me story-wise so that's one of those cases where the performance actually kind of uh, took away from uh, from the entire episode yeah so, you know, i hate to tr- i hate to be me. harsh on a I hate to be harsh on an individual actor, but he's the same guy who played the leader of the the eponymous Masterpiece Society in a fifth season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, where he was supposed to be a an example of a genetically perfect person who who falls in love with Counselor Troy and things like that. And he was awful in that one. And every every producer's commentary, every article about that episode afterward, they mentioned problems with the casting and i just this was he, he was perfectly fine as soul hunter number two um under uh, under the prosthetics and he's done a lot of voiceover work and a lot of other stuff since then but this this role was not his forte uh katie boyer as neil mcconnelly however i really liked her i thought that there is a I, i've been around uh local politics enough to have um encountered people who are activists um who she she strikes me as the perfect example of the the college grad who took a who majored in public policy and immediately started working um on, on behalf of unions and things like that you know she's not a dock worker but she carries herself and the, the, the dock workers trust her like one of their own i thought that she was totally believable um right down to how you know the fist down on the table the the sort of overwrought language that is stuff that i do see in the real world from time to time i i really liked her i just i wanted to like her um and i i think i did as as written i i completely agree that this this was a a great character and really fit again we get the sort of the staginess of the performance style coming in and she just she didn't quite click into the into the world for me her she was just a little I don't know, a little too intense at times and, and a little, you know, over pronouncing her words and, and stuff. And again, this is not the kind of thing that's going to bother me in a big way. But if we're just looking at her character specifically, I think it was a great character. I, I just think it, you know, maybe the, the time of the the recording that that's just that's just the way that they were doing it then. And, and I'm not used to it anymore. Yeah. Um, for me, the actress was solid to good, but not seamless. 
Um, the same kind of thing. There were just times when it was a little bit too much. But actually, I was paying attention this time because, Chip, I had the same impression you did with that character's background, the idea of the, you know, the young liberal, you know, firebrand type thing. But I was paying closer attention this time. And this time, my impression was that she was actually from a long line of blue collar mm-hmm. workers, that she had been one of the dock workers herself who got elected to represent everybody. Um, yeah, that was what I thought. You know, she mentioned like, you know, and that was one thing that, you know, between Sinclair and the long line of fighter pilots, Garibaldi and a long line or at least, you know, cops in his history and um, Connolly coming from a long line of um, construction or um, or union type workers. Um, JMS seems to do that on a regular basis um, <laughs> or they all or at least they all crowded in here for me at this time. But that was um, part of what where I got. Uh, the impression that she might have been trying a little bit too hard because, you know, she's been working with uh, as a docker. She's been elected to represent. And now, possibly for the first time, she has to be the leader in this situation. Like she mentions being in um, being in the situation on Ganymede or one of the other outposts of um, working like this and having to deal with it before. But now she's got to do it as a leader. And that may contribute to the actress's choices to be so strong about it because it's the first time she's having to take the lead in it. I don't know. But it, like Snyder's performance, her performance jolted me out of the story a bit at times. We're going to get to our regular Sinclair check in a moment, or at least our regular Michael O'Hare check. But uh how do you feel about the resolution of the A plot from the initial confrontation to uh, Sinclair showing up to make the surprising de- declaration that by any means necessary means that he can move line items around in the budget with the best of them? How's that for a, a rootin' tootin' sci-fi ending to a story? I liked it. I mean, I, 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 the, that bit where Sinclair figures a way out that's just so him. We have seen the way he can maneuver things and maneuver people to get the best possible outcome in previous episodes. This, this is a skill that Sinclair has discovered that he has as uh, he grows into leadership of the station. So that part sang for me. That worked perfectly. Um, also, the, and I also love the fact, that, and of course, this is what, you know, is going to continue to have him um being in trouble. He's already a political problem. And he's just made himself even more of a political problem by, you know, embarrassing Zento and flat out saying, never give the person a gun because if you don't know where they're going to point it, to drive that home like that has made it more problematic for him. The lead up to it kind of sort of worked for me. Um, I thought Garibaldi bringing in the the all the troops to surround the dock workers all at once felt a bit over the top to me, or maybe it was just the fact that one of the guys was beating his baton in his hand a little bit that, you know, that maybe it was the body language of those extras that disturbed me. Um, but, you know, the actual, you know, the, the the fight breaks out, Eduardo throws his punch and everything goes to blazes for a few minutes. And Sinclair gets Garibaldi to pull everybody out. It, it more or less worked for me. I'm not sure why we needed to have that fight scene if Sinclair couldn't have just gone down there and diffused it. But then, you know, Stephen would have been even more bored, I guess. (laughs) Well, I mean, also, maybe he didn't think of it until after that. I mean, or he didn't have his information yet. Right. Because he had to ask Ivanova to get him the get him the The, rush act. The full text of the Senate order. Yeah. So 
I think, I think it was, you know, we were supposed to believe that he was, he was trying to work towards a solution and just, you know, desperate to find something else. And he did, but it wasn't until after that first confrontation, which, yeah. And as for how I feel about this, the resolution, I just love it so much. This is, this is my kind of, my kind of ending to the story. And like Shannon said, we've seen this before from, from Commander Sinclair. I adore it when he finds a loophole and uses bureaucracy against the bureaucrats. That's just, you know, from, from my perspective, that's the coolest thing you can possibly do when you've got a, a story about bureaucracy. It's just, you know, shoving it back in its face. Just, that just, that gets me every time. So I, I love that he does it. I love that he, I mean, he, this is maybe not the wisest move on Commander Sinclair's part. He could have chosen to make Zento look good and possibly, you know, <clears throat> make, maybe not necessarily an ally, but not alienate him quite so much. He could have, he, he could have done that in a different way, maybe not so publicly, but he's so upset and so ticked off at this guy that he just brings and him down. Tired. And rubs tired. Tired. Yes, that's true. And he just rubs his face in it. And I just, yeah. I just want to stand up and cheer because I want to do that too. And it, so then in that scene, you actually, you know, we haven't gotten to our Michael O'Hare check, but you actually get the, uh, that actor, the Zento actor doing the wide eyed acting in this particular episode of Babylon <laughs> 5. It's just, ugh. And he's, it, he's so upset. He this is when he turns into a cartoon right there. It's not not just white eyes, but the nose is flaring and everything mm-hmm. else. It's just hysterical. Um, I, I I love the resolution myself. Uh, the only thing I could have done without was the comedy triumphant uh, musical sting at the end that Christopher <laughs> Front drops in there, and he's yes. done that the last few episodes. Whether it's right at the end before the closing credits or right here when uh, Sinclair. Uh, and the dock workers sort of celebrate, you know, da 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 da. It's so amateurish. Christopher Front gets like, so much better later on. It felt like we were in a video game and you had just like killed the main boss. <laughs> that was exactly what I thought of. Okay, Sinclair check, Michael O'Hare check. Erica, how'd we do this time? You know what? I actually really liked him in this one. For the first time ever, I have almost entirely positive feelings about Michael Hare's performance as uh, Commander Sinclair. And it started off r- right off the bat, like that first scene uh, where he is with Ivanova and uh, Connolly. Uh, he's just, uh, he seemed much more naturalistic. I think maybe it was because he wasn't trying to to be so intense. He wasn't trying to do so much. He was Sinclair just, spends you know. most of the episode sort of stuck in the middle. Yes. And he's like... Uh, uh, I love how rugged and sort of ragged he is in <clears throat> that scene with, with Garibaldi where he's got his collar is open, you know, the, the collar open acting in the five o'clock shadow. He's genuinely good in that. It's not just like he's okay. I, I found his performance excellent. Um, I think that he does a really good job when he is sort of this put upon in the middle being tugged both ways sort of guy. Um, the, the scene where he's talking to Senator Hidoshi kind of earlier on in the episode, I thought that was kind of kind of a little more on the iffy side because again, we were getting a little bit more of that intense Sinclair who's who's upset. But then at the very end, when he's he's saying you know okay and he turns away from the uh, turns away from the screen and then under his breath just says senator as he's turning away like that was just awesome he was it was a great <laughs> delivery of a line and I just I find myself why all of a sudden have I just gotten used to him has he clicked is it just this the difference of his character in this episode that works better for the actor I'm I'm very interested to see next week if if this is just a fluke or, or what happened because I'm kind of bowled over with my my positive reaction here I'm not sure what to do with it <laughs> <laughs> just 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 luxuriate in it just okay luxuriate in it. it's going to be great for, for 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 at least a couple of episodes 
maybe. Um, <laughs> Can we have an Ivanova check as well before we forget? Okay, go for it. Ten, nine, eight. Oh my God! Just <laughs> yes. well, that's great. Ivanova should kick people off the bridge every week. Every time. Agreed. Okay, I will give you points for Ivanova there, but I'm going to take away some points for the newscaster and Jakar and Londo in that scene. That's kind of a little pantomime Yeah, fair enough. That's true. Which and is why they need to be swept away by our awesome Ivanova. Yes. <laughs> good point, good point. Well, let's go into uh, B-plot territory and Jakar versus Londo. I really like that the shoe is on the other foot this time. Um, for, the, for most of the season... Although we've seen more uh, Shades of Grey for Jakar, uh, he's still been largely the antagonist compared to, uh, compared to Londo, who's been the more sympathetic character. She was on the other foot this time. Uh, Londo's an absolute jerk. He's got some reason <laughs> to be because he's he, 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 we haven't forgotten about Ragash 3. We've had a few... We've had more references than I remembered over this season uh, to that first episode incident. And he has an opportunity to stick it to Jakar, and he goes it goes for it with gusto. Uh, I am at no point uh, a Londo fan in this episode. I'm a Peter Jurisic fan, but not a Londo fan. Yeah, he is. Londo is such, a, as I have it in my notes, Londo is such a stinker. He is, which is why I enjoy watching it so much, because it's not just like he's being a bad guy um, or a stick in the mud in any sort of way. He is gleeful about this. He knows exactly what this plant is worth to Jakar, and Jakar has, has done him wrong in the past, and he wants to get his revenge, and it's not a cold revenge. This revenge is not a dish served cold. It is served, you know, nicely warm with a glass of Bravari. He is so happy about it. He's just excited, and I, I love watching him be so... Just he's just digging the knife in and giggling to himself like a little kid, like a nasty little kid. And and yes, definitely, I you know wouldn't say I'm a Londo fan, but I really really love the performance and it's fun to watch. And I also kind of like watching Jakar get all worked up since you know sometimes we see him on the other side. So, ha in your face, Jakar. Shannon Londo. I just remember wanting to throw something at him when he went into the uh, elevator tube. <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> As you said, very over the top, very he he is so happy about this and so gleeful that any any sympathy I might have had for him, you know, if this was if this was people in real life against each other and somebody who had been dealing with problems for a long time suddenly gets the upper hand and starts basically whacking Jakar with hammers. Um, yeah, no more sympathy. Sorry, you've lost it. <laughs> you've lost any moral high ground you ever had. And I do like that it's also this plays into the continuity of the show. This jumps us all the way back to midnight on the firing line. Londo specifically says he's getting some revenge for for Ragesh three and and what the Narns did to his nephew. Mm-hmm. So I I appreciate it when the show ties itself together like that, even if it's just in a, a small way with a couple of lines, because because that's one of my favorite parts about Babylon Five is you don't for necessarily usually forget stuff that happened before it. It all fits together. Yeah, which makes it all the more hysterical. I think when. Um when Londo dismisses the Narn as pagans after we've had Parliament of Dreams and we've had Londo singing about gods by the bushel and kissing goddess Lee on the butt, uh, the the statue and all this other stuff, you know, um, (laughs) a pot calling the kettle black in in, in, in serious. Londo just absolutely not sympathetic here. Uh, Jakar, 
rather sympathetic. He he seems to oscillate between the same schemer that we've known and a, a sudden a, a sudden heavy dose of spirituality that we haven't seen before. And I wondered if that was jarring because it was a little jarring to me at first. No, I think I think that it is entirely possible for people who are maybe not always the nicest uh, people in the world to actually be very spiritual and, and manage to fit their idea of of you know what is right in the world fits into their spirituality, so they're still able to to be terrible. I mean, you know, think about how many people have been killed over the centuries in the name of one god or another. You know, I just I I don't think that that being spiritual always equates with being a, a sweet, nice, soft person. So I, for me, it wasn't jarring at all. It actually just felt like a, a well-rounded character. Um, yeah, for me, uh, again, character. It felt like it was about time. I mean, we we have seen we've had an episode or two focus on Londo, give us more of Londo's background to see, you know some of the reasons why we should sympathize with him that, you know, he is, he knows his empire is in decline. He was longing for the glory days. We've seen that from Londo. Now we've had a little bit of fun with Jakar here and there, or a little bit of growth in here and there. Now we get a nice big dose of um, a side of Jakar that we haven't been allowed to see before. I think it was about time for this. Um, and I liked it very much. That's that's the biggest part of the B-plot that I liked was um, giving us this interplay between not just Jakar and Londo, but um, how the two sides see religion and see spirituality. Uh, for Jakar, this plant is sacred. Uh, it is a flower that um, the his people that his sect have treasured for centuries, um, and it's hard hard to get, hard to grow, hard to keep. Londo is just unhappy that they don't possess Narn anymore because you know, darn it, that stuff makes a really good enhancer to the alcohol, um, a use that Jakar feels you know is totally blasphemous. So we get interplays underneath the story that are really interesting to think about. Yeah. Uh, once you get past, once you get past the comedy, yeah, and it, it's a it's a real it's a real slap in the face to Jakar and a reminder of just how bad the Narn had it when the Centauri were occupying, that they not only didn't respect their beliefs, but they pretty much you know strip mined the planet and uh, used their religious stuff for you know for giggles, for alcoholic giggles. So, any last thoughts about uh, about this episode before we go into spoiler space? I would just like to say, uh, give a little shout out to the costume department again. Um, yet, yeah, in it, in addition to having the collars open, I thought uh, Londo's PJs were pretty darn sweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the silky stuff, and you know, when you get uh, Jakar being all pious, um, he's wearing an amazing cloak. I want that cloak. So, I just, <laughs> I, I like the fact that we get to see a little bit more. Um, you know, a lot of the times we see the ambassadors and stuff in the same old thing again and again, and it's nice when we get to see them in, in something different. So it's, uh, and I like how it, it fit in. You know, we've got the, as we've talked about before, the Centauri sort of mirroring kind of the Roman Empire, uh, lots of luxury. And sure enough, that, that orange sort of silky satiny number fit, fit right in. So I'm big fan, big fan. I think before we go into spoiler space, uh, we should give a bit of a shout out to the writer. Catherine Drennan, who I guess unofficially has another last name as she was uh, J. Michael Straczynski's wife at the time. So, um, yeah, 
Yeah, and he he was very careful to um, make sure there was no nepotism at all. She had to go through the entire process of submitting a speculation script, having um, all of the people below JMS vet it and work work its way up to him. And then he insisted on handing it up to his higher ups um, before the episode could be accepted as as a possible as a possible script. But um, I think it I think she did a great job. Yeah, it's a good episode. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's let down, I think, by John Snyder's performance. I think that's the main weakness of it. And, and the, the pantomime run out of the um, bridge, you know, is great for Ivanova, but it is a, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't believe uh, Peter Jurassic and uh, Andreas Katsoulas in that particular scene. Uh, but aside from that, I think it's a strong episode. I think it's a, as, as we've said before, it's the kind of episode that we rarely get in a world of uh, uh, shorter run series and uh, sort of aggressively following the season arc from episode to episode to episode. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, I think this is a good one. I like it. I like it a lot. The only other thing, the only other thing that lets it down as Stephen put it was that this episode and the last few episodes have been sadly lacking in the doctor who actor department. So (laughs) yes. Yeah. Uh, Very, very, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. (laughs) Well, if you're watching along with us, you have a very fortunate moment uh, coming ahead of you because next time we will be talking about the episode that gave the season its name, Signs and Portents. And I am reluctantly going to turn the microphone over in our prescribed order to Erica to moderate that episode. I am not going to spoil it. I'm just going to say that this is a big one. <laughs> oh, great, no pressure. Oh, it's a big episode. No, 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 the podcast, it's a run-of-the-mill podcast. You know, we'll just knock it out. It's no no, no pressure whatsoever, <laughs> okay, right, good. Erica? Excellent, excellent. Glad to hear it. <laughs> oh, but weigh in. Let us know what you think of By Any Means Necessary. If you haven't already, uh, we, have, uh, spoiler, we have spoiler and non-spoiler threads and uh, comments to this podcast itself over at b5audioguide.com. We're on Tumblr and Twitter as well. We'd love to talk to you. And look, off in the distance, that's a jump point, and it's opening now. Spoilers from this point on. And we're back. I don't think we'll be spending a whole lot of time with, with spoilers on this one. Um, I think this is a pretty good lead-in to Signs Importance as far as the Londo versus Jakar relationship and uh, where uh, Londo's arc is about to lead him. And also, I think we could probably talk a little bit about uh, the chickens coming home to roost for uh, Commander Sinclair. Where do you guys want to start? You know, um, I have almost nothing in my notes about uh, okay. the continuity because I don't. I I feel like sometimes I don't remember the entire uh, the details of the series as, as well as you guys do. Um, but the one thing that I did write down was just the quote uh, that you know, Commander, you are a far more spiritual man than I gave you credit for. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, they don't. <laughs> That's even true. Know the half of it. Yeah. Oh, I I'm not, not even that. sure that I'm not even sure that they knew the half of it at this time because I'm not sure where they were with the original Sinclair story arc versus the where they wound up with mm-hmm. him being valent. I don't know when this episode was made, so I don't know if they knew that uh, Michael O'Hare was <laughs> going to be leaving at the end of the season or not. But yeah, well, as it as it plays out, that, that line just struck me as as pretty funny. Yeah, it almost belongs. It almost belongs in that montage at the end of uh, war, of War Without End, and uh, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, for me, one of the lines that jumped out at me was uh, Connolly pointing out, um, there's no such thing as a happy ending because there's always new problems. And it's like, uh, yeah, that that's a pretty good description of the most of the run of Babylon 5. <laughs> Just when you think that you've won and things have worked out and no, here's another problem we've got to deal with. Um, since we were just talking about the B plot, um, I, I agree. One of the things that this episode does is, you know, it does start tipping the scales towards the majority of what we're going to see later on from Jakar and Londo, where Londo is going to wind up being, um, unintentionally as it might have been at times, but one of the, uh, biggest villain players for a while and Jakar eventually rising among his people to to the level of a Jaquan or a Jalan. Um, we get you know the first seeds of it here, the fact that he does take his duties so seriously. He he is he is devout in his beliefs and is trying his best to serve the people, his people on the station, uh, by conducting these religious ceremonies. So I think this sort of is like the birth of where those two characters go. Yeah, I think that this is a really well-timed episode to come just before Signs and Portents, because Jakar is going to say that as long as, you know, after he defeats the Centauri, uh, after, after the Narn defeat the Centauri, He's he's cool as long as his people are protected. You know he's cool. Uh, meanwhile, Londo is uh, going to be. You know he's going to have the worst possible answer to what do you want? And he wants you know he wants a, he wants grand, grandeur and greatness. You know he's he's acting out like a spoiled petulant child because he has no other leverage against a Jakar. And he's this is this is sort of it's played for comedy, but he is. He's a desperate person in this episode, actually. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, the other uh, thing that this fits into the larger story arc, as you said, a uh, few episodes down the road, we're going to get eyes and uh, where someone finally comes to the station um, looking for Sinclair's head because he has finally made enough political enemies with his choices in running the station to get their attention and to decide that he needs to be brought down. Uh, So all of these decisions all along are building. And this is a fairly big one that continues to build to a result where he has to deal with um, essentially uh, an attempt of um, attempt at a witch hunt of trying to uh, get him, get his command. Yeah. So this, I think this is a really necessary episode. Um, Even though it's not the, even though it's not, immediately the most consequential of the season um i i i think that it's i i don't think that this season works as well without by any means necessary erica in jumping back to the the londo and jakar thing i also think as far as their character arcs go that this is uh, i i like that this is still very sort of it has the feel of the early londo and early jakar personality you know they're 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 growing and maybe you know devolving as people throughout the entire course of the <laughs> series and here we still sort of have that slightly more light-hearted feeling to their interactions i mean yeah they're really upset but you get londo in the in the elevator going yoo-hoo and you know he's just giggling maniacally throughout it later on after the things that happened to him and the things that he causes to happen he 
he never completely loses that the twinkle in his eye, but he's much more beaten down by the world. And you get to see that happen more and more as we go along. And, and if you don't have this sort of apex of, of gleeful silliness, you don't see how far he's fallen. And I think it, it works a little bit the same for Jakar because he's, he's a little bit more, more over the top and, 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 and cartoony at the beginning. And then as he becomes more and more spiritual, you get to see that transformation. So I appreciate this episode very much putting both of them in their relationship and in the way it stands right now to the fore so that we can see later on what the what the comparison is. Yeah. Uh, compare and contrast that elevator scene with the one that's coming up in a couple of seasons uh, when they're trapped in there. <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, oh, Jack is back. Garibaldi second in command. Yes, I yep. noticed that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he he is backing in the background, yeah. which is um, which is good because uh, it, you, you need to make make him part of the scenery, make him part of the furniture, even to really mm-hmm. sell that uh, the surprise when he shoots Garibaldi in the back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that is by any means necessary. Uh, we will be back next time with signs and portents. And the first appearance of Morden and the Shadows and a prophecy that may or may not come true. This is what I've been waiting for ever since we started this podcast. I can't wait Ooh. for Signs and Portents. <laughs> but that'll be in two weeks' time because we have lives and we can't record the podcast as often as we would like. So until then, this is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon and Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5.